looks like there's a little snow falling on the back of that. How, how appropriate, hey? Well, Merry Christmas! We are now kind of into the rhythm of kind of the focus of the Christmas season. As you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing in on next week's vote to move forward from church uh, council to church government with elders. So uh, please keep that all in your heart and in your mind as we make that transition, Lord willing, next week. But today, we are going to focus in again on this person called Jesus Christ as we consider facets of Christ or facets of Jesus. And I want you to know, this is a special Christmas edition. We've been doing this series now for a little while. We've been looking at different aspects of who Jesus Christ is through his glorious names. He is the Logos. We spent a couple of weeks looking at what that means. We've looked at Jesus Christ uh, as the, um, the Lord of all. We've looked at Jesus Christ as, as the Savior. And today we're going to pick up on the names of Jesus that have been given to us for the Christmas season. And they have been given to us by none other than Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah said, for unto us, what? To Mary and Joseph, a child was born. It says, and unto us? A son is given. This is the son from God the Father. So it's tying together the incarnation here. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And how many of you are glad the government's on his shoulders? Amen. Yes. It is the kingdom of God that God has placed the responsibility for Jesus Christ to usher in. And so that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on to give us these great names. And his name shall be what? Come on, we can do this. The mighty... The everlasting, the prince of, yes, that's who he is. In fact, the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with true justice and with real righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And notice how it kind of ends it here. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord of hosts is God's military name. He marshals all the hosts of heaven to achieve his objectives. And he's saying this is as good as done because God said he's going to do it. So these are the beautiful names that are ascribed to Jesus Christ at this wonderful time of the year. Now because we only have today the 10th, next week the 17th, and then Christmas Eve the 24th, we don't have time for all four of those names. So we are going to focus in, God bless you, we are going to focus in on Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So today, we are going to consider a facet of Jesus Christ and how it affects our lives today of Jesus being the mighty God. Next week, Jesus is actually referred to as the Everlasting Father. Now, let's not confuse the Son and the Father, but there are aspects of the fatherhood of God that Jesus Christ actually lives out and that on Christmas Eve, we will talk about him being the Prince of Peace. So that's where we're going. So this morning, as we consider Jesus as the mighty God and the implications that has on our lives, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Now, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures that you brought with you, please reach under the chair in front of you and pull out that black Bible, our worship Bible, and turn to page 967. Page 967. As we talk about the implications for our lives of Jesus being the mighty God. Let's pray. Father, our goal today is to see Jesus. Our goal today is to behold him in a way where we see his love for you. Where we see it evidenced so perfectly and purely in his life. Because you call us to live and to love like him. And so we're actually going to witness today what it should look like in our lives to follow you in love. So Father, uh, apart from your Holy Spirit giving us understanding, uh, this is all for naught. So I pray right now that you would open our hearts to receive your truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what does it mean at Christmas that Jesus is the mighty God? Think about it like this with me. My prayer is that you will know, that you will press on to know the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of his deity equal with God the Father in all of his attributes, the radiance of his glory and the exact image of his nature, the supremacy of his eternality that makes the mind want to explode with the imponderable thought that Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He is simply there, absolute reality with which we reckon we must rise to the supremacy of his eternality while all the universe including this building in your body and this earth and all the galaxies are fragile contingent like a shadow in comparison to the substance of Jesus Christ we must know the supremacy of his never-changing constancy. Oh, to have virtues that never change, a character whose commitment is constant yesterday, today, and forever. Let us know the supremacy of his constancy. And let us know the supremacy of his knowledge that makes the Library of Congress look like a match box and makes all the information on the internet look like a 1940s farmer's almanac and makes all of quantum physics and everything that Stephen Hawking has ever dreamed look like a first grade reader. We must know the supremacy of the knowledge of our Lord. We must know the supremacy of His wisdom that has never been perplexed by any problem whatsoever, nor can he be counseled by any person or any being in the universe. We must know the supremacy of his authority. All authority is mine in heaven and on earth and under the earth. No change 
all authority, changing times and seasons, removing kings, setting up kings, doing according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We must know the supremacy of his providence, without which not a single bird in the extended reaches of the Amazon forest has ever fallen off of any limb, and without which not one hair turns white or black. We must know the providence of Jesus. We must know the supremacy of His Word, which upholds the universe by the Word of His power. All the galaxies, molecules, atoms, and subatomic reality nobody has yet dreamed of down there where no one has yet For time would fail to speak of His supreme severity and invincibility and dignity and simplicity and complexity and resoluteness and calmness and depth and courage. If there's anything admirable, if there is anything worthy of praise in all the universe, it is summed up in Jesus Christ. He is always infinitely admirable in everything and over everything supreme over all galaxies and endless reaches of space over the earth from the top of Mount Everest 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean 36,000 feet down in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Rim he is sovereign and supreme over all plants and animals from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses he is supreme over all weather and all movements of the earth hurricanes tornadoes monsoons earthquakes avalanches floods snow rain sleep he is supreme over all chemical processes that heal or destroy cancer aids malaria the amazing grace of antibiotics and a thousand healing drugs that we do not deserve. He is supreme over all countries and governments and armies, he said. There is not one square inch on planet Earth over which the risen Christ does not say, Mine! And I rule it. I am supreme. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is it that the mighty God teaches us at Christmas? What Jesus Christ shows us is simply this, the reality of the humility that honors God. 
You see, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus Christ not only lived the life that we could not live and then died the death we deserve to die, securing for us uh, forgiveness and securing for us his righteousness so we can have a perfect standing positionally before God the Father, but he also lived a life to show us what it looks like to actually love God. What does it really look like to say, God, I'm all in, I want to follow you. Now, God's desire is to make us like his favorite son, Jesus. I love the stated purpose of God in the scriptures. We never have to doubt what God's up to in our lives. And he said very clearly, for those whom he foreknew before uh, time, he is also predestined to what? Bingo. And so what we see in Jesus Christ, the mighty God in becoming man, is we see the humiliation, the humbling that the great God went through in order to secure for us not just salvation, but to show us what sanctification is meant to look like in our lives and in our experience as we follow him. So what I'd like to do in just the next couple of minutes is share with you a couple of ways that the Apostle Paul uses the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the mighty God who became flesh, to kind of show us how it's meant to influence our our lives in a very practical way. I'm only going to mention one, and then I'm going to camp on the other. So how is it that Jesus Christ manifests for us through his humility as the mighty God? How are our lives supposed to be different? How are our lives supposed to be unique compared to just how everyone else lives their life? First of all, the Apostle Paul very practically says this. It's meant to color our friendships. It's meant to color our friendships. Notice with me what the Apostle Paul told the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is how the incarnation colors our friendships. Notice, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Okay? But what I want is you in what? Humility. To count others more significant than yourselves. Now the Apostle Paul had to kind of give this admonition to the church in Philippi on, on a purpose. Because the church started in the house of Lydia, a seller of purple, a very powerful white collar woman. And then shortly after she came to Christ, there was this guy who was the Philippian jailer who was a blue collar jailer. And then there was a demoniac slave girl who got saved as well. So you put together a white collar powerful woman with a blue collar guy with a former slave. And what do you got? Problems. Challenges. Troubles. You've got sexism. You've got, you've got uh, you know, ethnicities. You've got, you've got cultural clashes. All that stuff's going on. Talk about a topic for today. This is the challenge of our day and age. We've got all these tribal groups who can't get along together. They refer to them as tribal groups because they all have their own desires. But we have all these uh, groups in our country that can't get along. And Paul's saying, listen, Philippi, you need to understand something. When you have a real diversity of peoples from different cultures and ethnicities and gender, he said there's only one way to handle it. I want each of you to look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. And I want you to have this mind among yourselves, which happens to be yours in Christ Jesus. And now he shows us the self-humbling 
of Jesus Christ, how he was willing to become man and how he was willing to be a, a servant and how he was ultimately willing to give his life on the cross. You see, the incarnation, the mighty God becoming man, informs how we treat others. That's what Paul is saying. So when you look at somebody and you think, ooh, ah, whatever their political or whatever persuasion they may be, think about the fact that Jesus chose to identify with you. And he's mighty God. And now he's saying, I want you to identify with others. Because I was willing to humble myself. It's your turn, people. It's your turn, children of God. It's time that we show the world how this works. And it's not by putting ourselves first. It's by actually considering others more significant and needful than ourselves. So this is one way that Paul uses the incarnation to speak into the lives of believers in the culture of that day. On the one hand, it's about friendships and how the grace of God is designed to cause us to be humble and to, to color, if you will, our friendships and cause us to walk with people of very different backgrounds from ourselves. So on the one hand, he talks about how it colors our friendships but the one I want to camp on for the next few minutes is not only does it speak to that, but the incarnation, the humiliation of the mighty God to become man also speaks into our finances. Yes, our finances. Pastor Bill, why did you choose to camp on this one and not the other one? I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I looked at both and I was like, well, Lord, which one do you want me to do? And this is the one I aired on. I, you know, so maybe I got it wrong, but we'll find out. But this is what he said to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. Now he uses the idea of the incarnation to speak into this group of people there in Corinth. Notice, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, or also is genuine. For, here we go, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich in heaven, the mighty God, yet for your sake he became poor, identifying uh, with a peasant poor family, born in a manger, born so low, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you in his poverty might become rich. So what Paul is doing is he's trying to speak to the Corinthian church about their need to join the rest of the church in that area towards a special offering. Let me explain. If you have your Bibles, let's look at the context briefly because the context will inform where we go. Context, context, context. Meaning is always found in context. So here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Let me put a map up here because that might help inform you as we kind of make our way through this. This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, the word is actually brothers or sisters, we want you to know those who claim to be followers of Jesus about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So up here is Macedonia. So he's talking about the church in Philippi. He's talking about the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea, the church in Apollonia, the church in Neapolis. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the people up there in Macedonia. So, I want you to understand the grace that was given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, now we don't know if this was persecution or famine, but the believers they were going through a very difficult time. He says this, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now again, what Paul is doing here is he is taking up a special offering for the poor that are in the city of Jerusalem, the believers who are in the city of Jerusalem. He is going around to the Gentile churches, taking up a special offering to try and alleviate what appears to be a famine that was happening in Jerusalem. Now, Paul had a couple of reasons for this. One is, he promised to the Jerusalem council that he would always remember the poor. He said, that's part of my mission. My mission is to remember those who have need. But secondly, he wanted to try and bring together these very differing groups of people who both named Jesus, the Gentiles and the Jews, under one heading, Jesus Christ. And so by taking up the money from the Gentiles and taking it to Jerusalem to submit to the Jewish Christians there, his goal was to bring healing between these two parts of the church. So what he's saying is the Macedonians have really stepped up. They've really given hard. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. For they gave, um, they gave according to their means. In other words, they gave what they could. And he goes on to say, as I can now testify, and beyond their means. In other words, not only did they give what they could, but they actually sacrificed. They went beyond just, just giving what was extra based upon what I need today and what I need tomorrow. They actually took what they would have needed tomorrow and gave it as part of the gift. Now, they never met these people. They didn't know anything about the believers in Jerusalem other than Paul said there are brothers and sisters in Christ and they're in need. And they said, oh my gosh, here we go. So these Macedonian believers, I mean, they were really on, pot, on, on course, man. They were really going after it. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. And this was of their own accord. In fact, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Oh my gosh. Please, Paul, please, take it, take it, please, more, no, 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 don't, no, take more. Take it to them, would you? Would you? You know, this reminds me of back in the Older Testament when Moses said to the people, you know, we're going to build a tabernacle for God, and I need for you to bring your gold and your silver and your, your scarlet and your, your, all your various things. And the people brought so much that, that Moses had to say, no, I'm sorry, we can't take anymore. You've given way too much. We don't know what we're going to do with it all. When was the last time you heard a pastor say that? Well, this is what Paul is intimating here. When he went through that area, they were overwhelmed at the generosity that these people gave. But I want you to notice why. He says this, because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is this. They overflowed with generosity to the point of sacrificial giving because of their love for God. The understanding of his care for their needs and by seeing the needs of others. You see, this is one of the more beautiful illustrations. You actually see this in Acts chapter 2 where the people were bringing all their stuff to the, to the apostles and they were laying it at their feet because, oh my gosh, God's doing a work. We want to be a part of it. And so they did a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I want you to notice, now Paul's turning his attention back to the Corinthians. Because he's always had problems with this church. This was, you know, this could have been his thorn in the flesh. I don't know. This, this group of people were always his challenge. He wrote 1 Corinthians to them to correct them. And then he visited them and, and nothing changed. And he wrote another letter to them and nothing happened. So, so he wrote, uh, came again. And so he wrote another letter, 2 Corinthians, which is actually probably 3 Corinthians based upon the fact that he had three letters written to him. We don't have the other one. 
Did you get all that? The point is, is he labored long and hard with the church in Corinth, and they were just continually sinning and selfish. And he was worried for them because they weren't manifesting the qualities that would be true of a true follower of Christ. So he's actually using the Macedonian church to goad them a little bit. Notice what he says, verse 6. Accordingly, in light of the churches of Macedonia, I want you to notice, we urged Titus, there's Titus again, that uh, as he had started with you, so he should complete among you the act of grace or the act of giving. So apparently Titus went before there and they said, oh yeah, we'll contribute, we'll help. Well, the time's come. Are you going to be good to your word? And so he said in verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, which doesn't make any sense, the, the way that reads. It actually could or should read, and in your love for us. So what Paul is saying here is it's pure sarcasm. It's pure sarcasm. These people thought they had it all. These people thought they were the most spiritual of the spiritual. These people could speak in tongues, and they had wisdom and knowledge. And so he's actually almost being sarcastic here. By the way, your great love for us, they didn't like Paul. They didn't think much of him. He was weak in body and his letters are no good. You know, that's how they perceived him. So I think Paul's being a little sarcastic here, but he wanted the offering to go to Jerusalem to help heal the, the Jewish and the, and the uh, Gentile churches together. So he was adamant that they needed to contribute. Here we go. Verse 8. I say this not as a command. In other words, I'm not going to force you. But... To prove by the earnestness of others. What does he say? Do you see what he's saying? The Macedonian church gave out a generosity because of the reality of their relationship with God. They proved they love God. It's your turn. So I'm not commanding you. But what I'm saying to you is this. If you really have a relationship with God, I want you to prove it by being generous. In this matter. This is what he's saying. And so now he goes on to use this, this statement about the incarnation of Jesus. And so he goes on to say this. For you know, that is, you experienced, I think, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the word gnosko, to experience. For you have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty, might become what? Now, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul put this. He put it very directly to them. And he used the pronoun you, your, you. He was making it personal. Uh, a wonderful commentator, by the man, uh, a man by the name of Philip Edgecombe Hughes. If you ever get anything he's ever written, commentary, I encourage you to get it. Philip Edgecombe Hughes. He said this about that verse. He said, the significance of Christ's self-impoverishment is grasped only in a manner that is intensely personal. It was all, adds Paul, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now listen, he says this. The logic implicit in the statement of this great truth is too obvious for anyone to miss. If he, Jesus, did all this for me, then nothing I can give or do from him can be too much. 
Such love constrains me. Redeemed at an incalculable cost. I am no longer my own. All that is mine is now his. For him to use in accordance with his holy purposes. So what Paul seems to be doing here is he's saying that the reality of the grace of God in the lives of God's people is evidenced through generosity and giving. In fact, Paul makes it a test of genuine love for God. Genuine love for God. Paul deeply questioned the reality of the Corinthians' faith in Jesus Christ. Because their hearts were still very much hardened in sin and sinful living and in self and selfishness. They weren't generous. They were selfish. And just a couple of pages over here. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we were in. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 13 if you have your Bible. This is kind of the final correspondence Paul has that we have. And this is how he kind of ended his, his statement to these people. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Hey guys, Corinthians, you really got to examine yourselves. You really have to see whether you are in the faith. In fact, I want you to test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about you? That Jesus Christ is in you. And then there's this question. Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. See, what Paul is saying is, if you have truly repented of your sins and your life, and you have embraced Jesus Christ with your life, the Bible says he now inhabits us through the Holy Spirit. And when that Holy Spirit indwells a child of God, he changes us, he changes our attitudes, he changes our loves, he changes our affections. One person put it like this, the test of true repentance and faith is a change of heart evidenced in life. Something like this, what you once hated, God and holiness and self-sacrifice, you now love. And what you, what you once loved, me, myself, and I, you actually hate now because of who he is and what he has done on your behalf. So there is a radical transformation that happens in the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ. We see it in the Macedonian church and how sacrificially they gave even beyond their own means. And Paul is now challenging the Corinthian church. Hey guys, I really need to test you in this because I want to see you approved in this. I don't want to see you disapproved in this. Hence, not truly of God, not truly of Christ. You know, there are statements like this in the Bible. Uh, often there are these things called warnings. And you know, we read things like this, and, and I, sometimes I, I, I think we wonder, what are they there for? <laughs> you know, you go through the book of Hebrews, and oh my gosh, there's so much stuff in Hebrews. It's like, if you, you know, turn from Christ, there's no more repentance to come back to faith. What? What's all that about? The warnings of Scripture are given to believers. Listen. Because it's only a true believer that would look at a warning like that and say, oh my gosh, is that true of me? You see, those who truly aren't Christ say, hey, that's not talking to me because I'm saved. I'm good. So I don't need to even think about testing myself, examining myself to see if I'm saved. 
See, that's what an unbeliever says. Because they think they're okay. But the true child of God who longs to live for the Lord, to, to please Jesus Christ, to give their life to him, to look more like Jesus, is saying, oh my gosh, could that be true of me? And so we do a self-examination. Where am I at in this? How am I doing with this? And so I did this. And I'm, you know, I, I, I do this too. You know, I don't just say it. I have to live this all week long, and then I get to say it on Sunday morning in two services. But I have to live with this. And so I started thinking, how generous am I? How generous am I? Is that a, a part of my heart that has been transformed by God? And is it something that is now becoming more consistent with the character of Jesus Christ, who was the mighty God and humbled himself? And so I started asking myself some questions. So I'm now going to take you into my own little journey for the next few minutes. And, and when we're all done, you can come down here and put your arms around me and say, Pastor Bill, we still love you, in spite of... In spite of how bad a sinner you are and, and evil uh, you really are. So I, I began to ask myself this question. Bill, how much is enough? How much is enough? And I'm starting to think this through and I'm standing in my, my kitchen. And my kitchen has kind of a bow window that looks down into our backyard. And you know, we got about a three-quarter acre lot, kind of a corner lot there in... in um, uh, La Plata, um, Clark's Run, and so I'm looking out the window, and I see one of these guys. And you know what? My backyard's full of these guys. They're everywhere, and they're just running and playing, and I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, thinking, how much is enough? I'm drinking my coffee, and I'm watching these guys play, and then no fooling. I'm watching this one squirrel run around, and he finds a nut, and he goes like this. And he runs around behind the wood pile, quickly digs a hole, shoves it on, he comes it over, comes back around like he never left. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? I'm hoarding. You see, I'm not a squirrel, I'm actually a pack rat. It's mine, it's mine, and I want it. And nobody's gonna have it because I know where it is and nobody else does it. Everybody else can starve, but I got mine. And I'm sitting there watching this and I'm thinking, you stupid little animal. Don't you realize that there are 500,000 oak trees all around my property? You'll never run out. I mean, I just reached out on the ground and pulled up a bunch. You know, um, in squirrel world, I'm Bill Gates. <laughs> I got Bitcoin cornered. You know, in squirrel world, I, I, I'm amazing because I hoarded my own. And I'm thinking about this stupid little creature. And I'm thinking, how much like him I am? How much is enough? How much is enough? And I'm, I'm standing there, and we have a three-bedroom, three-full bath, uh, split foyer built in the 1980s, and it's just Bambi and I now. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, we just went shopping, and we didn't just buy groceries, which we consume plenty of, but we bought other stuff. And I'm thinking, how much is enough? At what point do we actually say, enough is enough? Never. The real answer to how much is enough is just a, there you got it, yes. That's human nature. Just one more. Okay, two more. We'll make it three. All right, how about the whole bag? This is human nature. You know, it might be a squirrel with nuts, but this is what we look like with all our stuff. It's mine. 
It's my, well, I'll, I'll buy a gun. You stay away. Because I'm going to keep my stuff. and I'm going to protect it because it's mine. Is it? Oh, wait a minute. Do you remember that video we just watched? And there is not one square inch in all the earth where Jesus Christ does not cry. It is mine. It's not yours. And if you're his, then what you have is merely a stewardship that he's given to you to give to others. So it's not ours anyway. So when the squirrels are all starving to death, I will go out and throw this on the ground. And they're all going to say, God just showed up. <laughs> but you know what? I also filled a bird feeder with 10 pounds of seed. And God said what? Jesus said, why are you so anxious about the future? I feed the birds, they don't sow, they don't reap, but I make sure they have plenty to eat. He's talking to us. Why are we so anxious about the future that we have to hoard to make sure we got ours, to make sure we're okay? And I'm wrestling with my thoughts as I'm standing there laughing at the squirrel, laughing at myself. Because I thought he was stupid. I'm every bit the stupidness of that animal. Because I do exactly the same thing. And I'm thinking out loud for me, but maybe you can resonate a little bit with what I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about the scriptures. Oh, yeah, okay, here's me, here's me. Yeah, I love tech, give me more tech, tech is good. It looks at like my house actually, except the garage is over here. So yeah, and, and uh, more money, that's cool. Uh, upwardly mobile, keep going. A uh, couple cars, got to get, oh, and some nice jewels and stuff here. And, and yeah, I'll even reach for the sun because I have a hole the size of my heart in me that I'm trying to fill, and the only thing that can ever fill that is Christ himself. It's not in what you get, it's in what you give that God gives you satisfaction. And, but like that squirrel, it's mine. Don't you dare touch it because I hid it. And you better not see where I hid it because it's mine what I want it. And Jesus says stuff like this. And this stuff keeps me awake, friends. This stuff challenges my soul, friends, because I want to be like Jesus. I want my life to be reflective. Jesus, um, Paul said this. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be what? Are you? Am I? Does that change the reality that I'm called to be generous? That I'm called to be giving? That I'm called to, to just lay it all out there and, and, and let God use it in the way God wants to have it used to, to touch other people's lives, to meet needs? We'll talk more about those needs in just a moment. Another scripture that oh so weighs heavily on me. From everyone who has been given much, much will be, what's the word? Don't forget that, you North American you. I took some time and I went to a place and plugged in my salary and it did a quick search against the world, exactly where I fit on the scale of the world's income. And woohoo, I'm not a one percenter. I'm a ten percenter. I am at the ten percent earning level in the entire world world. I dare say some of you might be there too. Maybe you're even nine or eight or seven. Do we have a one percenter in the house? Maybe not. Much will be required. And from that one who has been entrusted with much, what? Yeah, so these things weigh on my heart's friends. My heart, friends. <laughs> I only got one. 
But I'm asking myself, you know, Corinthians, I really want you to prove your love for God by being generous. Examine yourselves. Are you really in the faith? Is this part of your core being developed? Because it's who Christ is. And so I'm, 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 I'm wrestling with this. Bill, how much is enough? I don't have an answer quite yet. Bambi and I are, are praying through this. We're really wrestling with where do we go next with what we have. Because we're at a different place in life than we've been before. And we're trying to make sense of how do we free up the most to achieve the most for the kingdom of God. Those are the questions we're asking ourselves. So not only did I ask myself that, but after I kind of went through this little um, look at my own soul, and I discovered that my heart is more like this than not, I then began to wonder, Bill, are you just another self-deceived? cultural American Christian? Am I just another self-deceived American Christian? You see, somebody has said that the more dominant the culture, the harder it is to see its influence on you. We live in a very dominant culture. In fact, 70% of the gross national product of America is based upon consumption. So, so our country plays off that desire for more. I want this. I need this. That, that little animal instinct that's within all of us to always feel like there's scarcity and we always need to kind of hoard. Our culture says, hoard away. Buy more. Please. Keep the economy going. Be a good American, right? That's how we do it, right? And if you can't, let me give you some credit cards. We'll make this work, one way or the other. Christmas is coming, come on, don't be a Scrooge. This is what we do. And so this is our cultural narrative. We have this narrative. The life of Christ, self-sacrifice, humility, generosity, and then we have a cultural narrative, and they're very different. The cultural narrative is this. You deserve the best you can get. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of pleasures and happiness and property. That's your right. And now in that, what we do, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, in that we give our kids the best of everything, right? Amen? We give our kids the best of everything, not realizing that it may not be the best for them. But our culture says this, you know, if you can afford a private school, stick them in there. Private school, if you can do travel teams, sports travel teams or whatever, go for it because your kids deserve it. Don't forget to go to Disney. That's an American right, right? You see, this is the cultural narrative. And when your kids get a little older, you do well enough with your grades, what we want you to do is we want you to go to college. I want you to get into a good college so that you can get a good diploma, so you can get a good job, so you can make good money, so you can pursue advancement, so you can buy a house, so you can have the cars, so that you can plan for retirement. I had a discussion, maybe it's better to call an argument, with a friend, um, in Virginia the other day, he said, you know, Bill, I'm so sick and tired of the millennials. I said, well, Don, what brought that on? He said, well, you know, um, none of them want to work. And, and, and they just want to sponge off their parents. And I looked at him. And I said, you know, I don't know if that's completely true. I think what they have observed 
is how our pursuit of money and things has not left us any richer for it. And I think there's a whole generation coming up that are saying, hey, listen, that didn't benefit my parents. Why would I choose that way of life? And they've chosen a different way to live life. Because the way we've lived it doesn't work very well. We're all less rich relationally for the sake of the dollar that we pursued. So he and I had this discussion back and forth. But the reality is this. The American dream is not a biblical narrative. It's antithetical to the biblical narrative. And so the question is, where are we at in all of this? So I'm asking myself, if, have I just been caught up into this whole American way of doing church? You know, because the culture's dominant. And then there's this ad. I think it's the ad. Let me see what I got coming up next. This could be the ad. It may not be. I, this is the first time through this. So let me see. Yes. Prudential asked these couples, how much money do you think you'll need in retirement? I have no idea. <laughs> More than I want to think about. <laughs> Choose wisely, everyone. No cheating. No cheating. Then we found out how many years that money would last them. <laughs> A lot of people fell short of even the average length of retirement. We have to think about not when we expect to live to, but when we could live to. We have to do something now to make sure we're set for then. Let's plan for income that lasts all our years in retirement. I hate this ad. Let me explain why. Because they show you all the money you have for a space of time you hope to have, but none of them have the line where it says, and now you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They just don't. And so get as many as you can because you have no idea what tomorrow holds. So, so you better hoard and get all you can and have and have and have and have and don't worry about other people. They'll get theirs if they are smart enough. And yet the scriptures say very clearly, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I guarantee you, you'll not lack for what he will give to you. Now, he's not going to give you everything. I believe it's uh, food, clothing, shelter, and today we need a car. Those are, the, those are the necessities of life. That's it. Beyond that, those are wants. And so I don't like that ad because it's good for the world, but it's not good for the believer because that's not our story. Our story is one of generosity, it's one of self-sacrifice, it's one of standing before the Lord and hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's not about how much I can have. That's not our story. That's the world's story. And again, the scriptures just continue to speak to me on these issues. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, and there's no two ways about it, you cannot serve both God and money. Make your choice. Please choose well. Another scripture that this speaks to me. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word and the life proves to be unfruitful. That's talking about the soils and as the seed lands, it seems to have germination in life, but you know what? 
Uh uh-uh. Riches, other things, choke out faithfulness and love and obedience to God. And then another one. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In context, it's not talking about a gate in the wall of Jerusalem, okay? The camel gate. Jesus is trying to be ridiculous. Camel, eye of a needle, how's it going to go? It doesn't. Salvation's a miracle no matter who gets saved. But it's especially a miracle if the person has wealth. Because, as one person remarked, it's funny, in the scriptures you notice those who have virtually nothing are quick to give it all up. But it's those who have too much that can't. And yet, one of the character qualities that is represented in a true follower of Jesus Christ is we do not hold on to. We let go. We humble ourselves. We become generous. I'm asking myself these questions. I'm I'm inviting you to wrestle with me in this. All right, I have a video that I can't show, so I'm going to skip it and move along. Goodbye. So I guess the question becomes, to me, am I this guy? James says this, what good is it, my brothers, sisters, if someone says, I've got faith, I believe, but does not have actual works, generosity, giving, can that faith save him? And the way the construction is, the answer is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without actually giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And the answer is absolutely no good. That's not beneficial to them or to you. So also, faith by itself, if it does not actually have an outworking, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's kind of giving a little argument here. But this is the part that challenges me. You believe that God is one. You do well. What does it say? You test your orthodoxy. Do you believe God? Do you believe God is one? Do you believe the Trinity? Do you believe God is all-powerful? Do you believe God is is all-knowing? Do you believe God is omniscient, omnipotent? Do you believe all that? So do the demons. They got excellent orthodoxy. But what they don't have is a love for God that pushes them into submission, that says, here's my life. Use me for your glory. Demons said, nah, it's my life. We're going to follow this guy, not you. So I guess the question is, I kind of wrap this whole thinking up in my heart is, as I looked at the Corinthian believers, as I saw the self-humiliation of Christ, and as I saw how Paul brought this to bear on, on the Corinthians' hearts, and then I brought it to bear on my heart, testing my faith, I have to ask myself, how much is enough? Am I simply another cultural Christian who bought the, the, the hook, line, and sinker of how we live in this world in America, or do I, do I just have demon faith? I can answer all the questions correctly. But my heart doesn't love God above all things. Because if it did, I would be generous. (sighs) Thank you, Jesus, for your self-humiliation. 
Thank you, Jesus, almighty God, being willing to actually walk amongst smelly fishermen, the poor, the rejected, those who are the off-scouring of the earth, even knowing one would reject you. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to humble yourself to the point of going to the cross and allowing the Father to pour out his wrath on you instead of me, and he judged my wrath uh, his, my judgment on you. Thank you, Jesus, almighty God, for your humility. Now, I have been predestined to be conformed to the image of him. In the same humility of life that Christ himself exemplifies. You see, salvation is a gift. By faith, through grace, in Christ alone. But the genuineness of the reality of a new heart means a new way of thinking and a new way of living that shows the genuineness of real life. Paul was questioning the Corinthian church. I just don't see it in you guys. You continue on in your sin as though nothing has changed and, and, and you're selfish. I'm worried about you. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. And you say, Pastor Bill, don't be so hard on yourself. Can I just say, the Pharisees thought they were aces with God. If you walked up to a Pharisee and asked them if they were a child of Abraham, they would say, absolutely. Were they? No. Jesus said they were children of the devil. How can you be that self-deceived? It's too easy. So my self-examination is genuine. I really want to have a heart that honors Christ in generosity, and I'm struggling with bringing this to fruition in my life. I need to repent of this and pray that the Holy Spirit gives me more grace in this to realize this more fully. This is what Bambi and I are praying over these days, that this will be a reality in our lives. And I want it to be a reality in your life. Let me tell you why. Now, we don't do it for this reason. We do it because we love God. But let me just close with, with a couple of things. Let me just take a moment and, and call this a moment of truth. A moment of truth. Right now, in this church, we have a person who attends here who is homeless. We have another person who most likely will be homeless next month. We have several families that are in danger of missing mortgage payments for various reasons. Some here are about to lose their jobs and a number are looking for employment right now. Several are caught up in terrible debt because of health care crises in their lives. There's also the need for some vehicles for people to be able to live their lives in a way that can be productive. And this is to say nothing about the hundreds of men and women and children who are presently sleeping in their cars or in the woods all around us in Charles County as the temperatures drop. There are squirrels that are starving. And we're called to feed them. I don't mean squirrels. People. People are hungry. People are cold. People are in need. And they're in our congregation. And so I guess the question is this. The question is this. 
Would you be willing to say, I will join 10 other families in giving $100 a month to house a homeless member for one year until they can get back on their feet? 10 of us, 100 bucks a month. Most of us, that's kind of, we can squeeze it in there somewhere because it's not a big deal. If there's 20 of us, we can help two homeless people in our congregation. I want you to take out the connections card in front of you. Take out the connections card in front of you. If God is putting something on your heart to meet a need, I simply want you to put the connections card in Dennis's hand. I didn't tell Dennis I was going to do this. It's going to go in Dennis's hands. I'm not touching any of this. Are you willing as a family to join 10 other families in giving $100 a month to help a homeless member for one year till they can get back on their feet? Again, 20 people, we can help two uh, people. I also want to give you a chance to give a one-time gift to help a family's medical needs to help them out of debt. We have a family member, we have a, a person in our congregation here who loves the Lord, they serve here faithfully, and they are in dire straits. They won't tell you, but they've told me, and they don't know I'm telling you. But this is what a family is. Let me ask you something. If your child came to you and they, they've strived hard to make ends meet, but it's not working, what would you do as a parent? We're called the family of God. How does my brother, how does my sister find help? The family. We help each other. This is first century stuff. This is what made the church so amazing. Please, pull a connections card if you can help. We need a couple of vehicles. We need a couple of vehicles. One that can actually hold uh, several people because somebody consistently brings somebody to church with them. And they need a vehicle in order to pull that off. Their most recent vehicle has died. Can you help with this? Also, let me say this. There are several, write the word benevolence on it. Say you want to make a commitment to the benevolence fund. There are several families whose mortgage payments are going to go unmet unless we can help them. And let me say again, we do not give of, because of need. We give because of love for God and because we have experienced his generosity in our lives. That's why we give. We give because of Christ who gave his all for us. Now, let's talk about a moment of humility. A moment of humility. Those who are in need, and I'm talking to you right now, it is incumbent upon you to swallow your pride and to approach one of the elders, myself and Dennis, until we bring that about in the life of this church, and say, I have a need. I know in talking with several of you more recently that your needs are real, but if you wallow in your brokenness, being too proud to ask for help, we can do nothing to help you. This is hard to receive help, but it's part of what it means to be the family. We will help meet a need food, clothing, housing, or transportation, or a financial burden that jeopardizes those basic needs in life. We're not going to help people live high off the hog. Our goal is to help people live. That's the goal. It's the body helping the rest of the body. And I'm going to conclude with not only a moment of truth, there is real need in our church and all around our church, a moment of humility. If you have need, you have to say something. We don't read minds. Please say something. And then lastly, I just want to say this is a teachable moment for many of us. For those of you who have swallowed the American nightmare, hook, line, and sinker, 
and you are in debt up to your eyeballs, and you feel God tugging at your heart to help, but you have no means to help, free yourself up from your indebtedness. This life is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and the resources that you have are not yours. There is not one square inch of all the earth where Jesus Christ does not say, that's it. It is not yours. Who are you to put yourself in debt as a steward of God? Free yourself up so that you can live lean for the Lord and give generously as he brings needs to you. Secondly, maybe it's time for us to downsize some of us. Maybe it's time to say, you know, I don't need the mansion anymore. I don't need the, ca- the, you know, the house on the hill. I don't need all this stuff. Maybe it's time to start living by real faith. You know, not buying into the idea that retirement's about your comfort, but about getting involved in the lives of the least of these and getting your hands dirty with real people's lives so that they can see the reality of God's love in you so you can be a witness to Christ to them. Did you get that? It's kind of breathless, but I think I said it. Maybe for the first time ever, you can honestly begin to pray, give me this day my daily bread. But we don't live anywhere near the area of faith. We live on the side of stuff. Never need to pray that. Might do us well to get ourselves into a place where we have stretched the resources God has placed in our hands to the limit. And my friends, nothing pleases the Father more than faith. Nothing. I'm going to keep you from rushing me and and stoning me and all kinds of other stuff to me. I'm going to give you a couple of resources and then we're done. Resource number one. You should read this. The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns, who is the head of World Vision. What does God really expect from us? The answer that changed my life and might just change the world. Excellent resource. I highly recommend it. Another one. John Piper, don't waste your life. The end of life is where you have the most knowledge and the most resources to actually charge the gates of hell, not to pull back in comfort. Did you hear that? That was a pin drop. And then lastly, David Platt, take back your faith from the American dream radical. This is, this is, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. The Americanized version says, it's all about you. God loves you. Christ died for you. You're going to heaven. Now live your life and God will help you all along the way. That ain't how it works. God loves you. Christ died for you. Now give your life back to him and walk with him and let him use your life for the forwarding of the kingdom of God. That's God's dream, not America's. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for my wrestlings. I really long to have my life count. I don't just want to be a consumer. I don't want to just breathe and consume and die. I want to be a giver. I want to be a lover. I want to move forward. I want to see the kingdom of God advance. I want to see real needs be met right here in our congregation. I want to see real lives touched all around our community. Oh, Father. We have so many resources amongst us that there is not one person here or I dare say many around us that would ever have to go hungry if we just really lived on mission with Christ at the forefront. Help us, Father, 
None of us is equal to this. It is a work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Help us to love you. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.